Across the Margin, the podcast. I'm your host, Michael Shields. Just a reminder before we get going, Across the Margin, the podcast is part of the Osiris Media Group. Go to OsirisPod.com and check out the fascinating and growing group of podcasts they have to offer. That's OsirisPod.com. What I'm thrilled to share with you today is one of the most eye-opening interviews I believe I've ever conducted. That interview is with prize-winning journalist and internationally recognized expert, on corruption in government networks throughout the world, Sarah Chase. Chase has served as Special Assistant on Corruption to Mike Mullen, former chairman of the U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff, as well as having advised David McKernan and Stanley McChrystal, both commanders of the International Security Assistance Force. She has been a reporter for National Public Radio from Paris, covering Europe and the Balkans. She's the author of The Punishment of Virtue, Inside Afghanistan After the Taliban, and also Thieves of State, Why Corruption Threatens Global Security, which is winner of the 2016 Los Angeles Times Book Prize. She recently penned a book that illustrates the daunting fact that the United States is showing similar signs to some of the most corrupt countries in the world. That book, On Corruption in America and What is at Stake, is the focus of this episode and is one of the most crucial books that you will encounter. From the titans of America's Gilded Age, Carnegie, Rockefeller, J.P. Morgan, etc., to the collapse of the stock market in 1929, the Great Depression and FDR's New Deal, from Joe Kennedy's years of banking, bootlegging, machine politics, and pursuit of infinite wealth, as well as the Kennedy presidency, to the deregulation of the Reagan Revolution, undermining the middle class and the unions from the Clinton policies of political favors and personal enrichment to Trump's hydra-headed network of corruption, systematically undoing the Constitution and all our laws. In On Corruption in America, Chase shows how corrupt systems are organized, how they enforce the rules so their crimes are covered legally, how they are overlooked and downplayed by the richer and better educated, and how they become an overt principle, determining the shape of our government, affecting all levels of society. On Corruption in America is one of the most fascinating books I've ever read. It's also beautifully written, but it is easily one of the scariest books I've ever read. It connects the dots between corruption with violent extremism, revolution, mass migrations, and environmental devastation. What we learn is that the main objective of these opportunistic, greedy, and power-hungry corrupt systems is not to serve the public at all, but to maximize returns for network members. Bottom line is this, Sarah has spent decades studying and writing about governments and corruption throughout the world, and now armed with that arsenal of knowledge, she has finally set her sights on America, and it's entirely mind-blowing what she reveals about the level of corruption in America and what it can mean to all of us citizens. This book and conversation to follow dramatically highlights what we were up against. The amount of knowledge Sarah shares in this less-than-an-hour interview is simply astounding. And so let's not waste another minute here as I'm positive you will enjoy and be deeply enlightened by this interview with Sarah Chase. Cross the margin. Cross the margin. Hey, thank you uh, so much for taking the time today, Sarah. I truly appreciate it. On Corruption in America is such an important book in my estimation, and I'm truly thrilled to talk to you here today about it. So thank you. Well, thank you. Uh, Thanks for for seeing the book that way and for taking the time. Of course. So um, you commence the book where uh, you're listening to the radio. You're um, awaiting the result of a landmark Supreme uh, Court decision, this in this case being uh, McDonald versus United States. Uh, 
the result, it seems, was frustrating to you and, and to me after learning more about it. But I was wondering if you could talk about what this case was some and how it's a perfect example of of corruption in America and also how it's a good setup for what the book um, kind of opens up into. This was a case that came down, you know, in the thick of the 2016 presidential campaign. It was, you know, shortly after the Brexit vote in England, you know, there was a lot going on. Um, I had my ear tuned to it because I've been working on corruption for a long time. And it felt like, I mean, I expected it to go the other way. It had been, you know, the former governor of Virginia had been convicted for corruption for a really slam dunk quid pro quo bribery setup where a kind of quack businessman who had some kind of pills that he was making out of tobacco, you know, products wanted clinical trials done. So he was sort of converting from big tobacco into big pharma, uh, which already tells you something, right? You know, and he lavishes a bunch of, you know, rides on Ferraris and on private jet and, and loans and paying for the governor's daughter's wedding and, you know, this kind of Rolex watch, um, vacations at luxurious places, what you could call sort of low-level corruption on one level, but very clear, you know, and there would be, you know, a request for a loan on the phone, which was tapped, and then the governor immediately made a call to the State Department of Education or something like that. I mean, it was as clear an exchange as you could ask for. Mm -hmm. What shocked me was not just that the case, that the conviction was overturned. It was overturned eight to zero. Unanimously. Right. Unbelievable. That, that was what really blew me away, particularly. So it said a couple of things. It said, number one, there's a gigantic gap between what regular people understand to be corruption. I mean, you just had to listen to the facts of that case for like 37 seconds to understand this is corrupt if you're a regular person. And yet, across the political spectrum, uh, the elites as defined by the then eight justices of the Supreme Court, plus the three panelists on the radio show I was listening to, all came down the same way. They all were understanding corruption in a very different way, in a very narrow, technical, legalistic, sort of mincing way. And I felt like, oh boy, trouble is brewing, because I had seen it too often in developing countries, that when regular people were the victims of systemic corruption and could not get redress from you know, the civic institutions of their country, invariably some kind of an extreme reaction resulted. And I wrote a whole book about that called Thieves of State, which looks at developing countries, but it had an epilogue or has an epilogue in which I say, hey, guys, and this came out in 2015, right? Mm -hmm. So I said, hey, guys, you know, we are not immune here. We're on this spectrum, if you will, we, the United States of America. So what I was trying to say with the epilogue is some kind of extreme explosion is likely here in America. I didn't realize it was going to happen the next year. (laughs) Because, frankly, that's how I read Mm -hmm. the crazy election of 2016, Mm -hmm. right, where two individuals who no one gave a chance And I do not compare them by any means, but they were both seen as maverick outsiders, Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. You know, between the two of them, they had the bulk of the voting electorate. Um, And what was so interesting was that opinion basically poo-pooed corruption. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, this court should not be, you know, it's beneath this court's, you know, uh, a dignity in a way to focus on such tawdry details as Rolex watches and, and Ferraris. And the opinion said instead what the court was worried about was prosecutorial overreach, meaning 
the court was saying the United States of America is in more danger from the fight against corruption than it is from corruption itself. That's what unhinged my jaw. And not a couple of weeks later, we have, you know, as I say, Sanders had already been talking about a systemically corrupt political system. And then Trump starts coming out with drain the swamp and it sets the electorate on fire. So obviously the Supreme Court justices got it wrong. And that's when I really understood, okay, it's time to, to focus, to aim the full brunt of the analytical framework that I had been applying to developing world kleptocracies, right? Countries, notorious countries, you know, like Nigeria or Honduras or Afghanistan, where I lived for a decade, Mm -hmm. use that very same methodology on the United States. And that's what I try to do with on corruption in America. It's, um, and it is amazing. And I thought that was one of the most poignant parts to me, at least is to see how, um, you know, sort of corruption we see and, and we see in that case, if left unchecked by the systems that many of us believe are there to actually keep, you know, to check them, it actually can lead to extremism. It, and, it, and it does, and you kind of, you know, it, it, that sort of corruption um, can lead to, to either disengagement or disgust with politics. And I believe they also, they, they know that, that sort of over, you know, corruption when they do it they, they know that it's affected in this way and it leads to extremism as you said and you know the i think i saw you mentioned once how it's you know kind of a voting for a wrecking ball and i think we saw that in this case yes. in the last election exactly exactly yeah. and so my experience with that in in places like nigeria and afghanistan was more dramatic you know i sat with a bunch of or several people i mean friends of mine in northern nigeria who are highly educated highly, you know, they're, they're regular people, they're college graduates or more, they have professional jobs. They said they supported Boko Haram originally mm-hmm. because it was going after the most corrupt institutions in the country. Yep. And it wasn't until later, you know, that they sort of saw, okay, you know, that was a little too far in, in one direction. But that's the thing, when you're driven to distraction mm-hmm. by a systemically corrupt, you know, environment, you're not doing you know, subtle political analysis, you know what I mean? You explode. Your reaction, you're reacting, yeah. You're reacting, exactly, and you're voting for a wrecking ball. Now, the the, the sad uh, reality of that is it's very often your skull that gets hit by (laughs) that wrecking ball. Well said, yep, absolutely. Um, I don't want to go too much further without bringing something up. Throughout the book, you, uh, you employ this use of a very, very powerful metaphor, and that is the hydra. And I was wondering if you could talk about this, um, what is the Hydra and how it does apply to uh, corruption in America and elsewhere. It's re- I thought this was fascinating. and You kept bringing it back to it in, a, in just a, a very impactful way. Thank you. I really appreciate the question because yeah. I think this is one of, you know, it's not like there are no books about American corruption on the market at the moment. I think mine is different in the, it, it, it provides a framework for understanding rather than being the latest kind of panting scandal, you know, scandal account. Um, what I'm really trying to do here is equip readers with both a kind of analytical and imaginative way of understanding what's happening to us. And what I think is that, so I'm going to back up from the Hydra just a little bit, if you don't mind. Of course. Um, You know, the word myth has almost become an insult, you know, in modern America, right? So I use the expression sacred story. I mean, myths are the ways that humans have inquired about and understood our condition for tens of thousands of years. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, we've kind of turned our backs on sacred stories as a source of wisdom. And sometimes I feel like, therefore, we're being obliged to live our myths. Mm. I mean, the characters striding our stage these days are so exaggerated, they seem to come out of out of myths. Mm -hmm. So I deliberately chose some important sacred stories to really get at some of the fundamental concepts, some of the fundamentals of what's happening to us. And the first one 
I touch on is Midas. Because if you don't understand the Midas disease, you don't understand how we get into systemic corruption. The Midas disease, what was so fascinating is I knew of that as a myth. The guy, you know, who gets one wish from a god and he says, I want everything I touch to turn to gold. And the god is actually really disappointed, but made a promise and so gives it. And Midas quickly discovers that it's a curse, that it is no blessing at all. Why? And I think Nathaniel Hawthorne put it best when he gave Midas a daughter. The daughter, as she sees his distress, he picks up an apple and it turns to gold. He can't taste it. I mean, can you imagine not being able to taste that crisp, sour, delicious feeling taste that we're all about to enjoy as fall approaches ever, ever again? You know, he's horrified. In fact, he can't eat anything. And his daughter runs to him. She's his favorite thing next to gold. He kisses. She runs to, to, to comfort him. He kisses her forehead. She turns to gold. That's what the love of money does. Mm-hmm. It causes us to convert everything of priceless, irreplaceable value into a trans, you know, transactable currency. What's fascinating is there was a Midas, and he basically lived when and where money was invented. Money is different from gold. And so I go into that, and I go into a little bit about the kind of Aristotle wrestled with it. Aristotle, I mean, all of the great Greek thinkers were actually doing their work in the very early days of money, and they found that money was converting sacred values into cash. And what Aristotle found is once you get addicted, you know, once you get sick with the Midas disease, it becomes a race with no finish line. It's not the same as having a good quality of life. It's how you measure your social status. And that means, you know, if you've got three million, well, I need four. You know, and then you need four and a half. And, you know, there's no end point there because we're in a competition. And you get to ridiculous, you know, things like Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross lying to Forbes magazine about, you know, how many billion dollars he owns. I mean, it's just it's really, you know, and, and by the way, these are all zeros. Mm-hmm. It's not gold, it's yeah. zeros. Now, it, it, and, and you equated it one time when you were talking about the Midas disease and today's world people afflicted with it. Um, you know, they're they're touching... Instead of, you know, you talked about the apple and, and his daughter are touching uh, waters and our mountains exactly. and our forests and turning those into gold right there. But you're right. They're not turning them into gold. They're turning them into zeros in their bank accounts. And, yeah, that Midas disease is, is, is something we're seeing in a different way. And, and you paint a vivid picture of that. We have such a pandemic of it that ask around, what do most Americans think of when they hear the words the Midas touch. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's they a, think it's positive, it's positive right? positive connotation. Absolutely. We've completely lost the understanding of the myth, which is this is a deadly Bad curse yep. that's going to destroy your society. So that's Midas. Mm-hmm. Then, so what happens when a society is afflicted with the Midas disease? You inevitably get the ones who have hoarded a certain amount of gold or zeros in their bank accounts, they start rigging the system so that they can compete to get more. So that brings us to our second really important myth, which is Jesus and the money changers. Mm -hmm. And that was, I mean, I spent a couple of months on those four lines of gospel. It was so rich Mm -hmm. once I started looking into it because, you find that, number one, it's the most violent thing that the Prince of Peace did. Yep. Yeah, he was using, was a, he was using a whip. He, That's right. Yeah, yep. You're exactly right. Yeah. Now, interestingly, though, he didn't whip any people. Okay. He actually didn't hurt anyone. It was performance art. It, it. Wasn't, it wasn't terrorism, although terrorism is a kind of performance art. Yeah, I mean, true. we don't need to go down that rabbit no, hole. But, but, you, but you're right. But, but it was a shaming exercise, let's put it that way. And what's fascinating is that was the moment 
that the kleptocratic elite of his, or the kleptocratic network, if you will, of his society, which is to say the money changers, the high priests of the temple, the judges of the Sanhedrin, the, the Supreme Court, those were the equivalent of Washington, right, plus Wall Street. Basically, it was as, as if you had Washington and Wall Street in the same place. That's when the the bosses of that complex decided they had to kill this guy. He had put his finger on the on the heart of the problem. And, and and so it means that it wasn't, you know, love thy neighbor, it wasn't loaves and fishes. That was okay. Yep. Once he affected their pocketbook. Once he pointed the community, because he didn't do it alone. He was surrounded by a cross-cutting group of his society, not one identity group. He had already merged them together with love thy neighbor and loaves and sufficients. He had brought his whole community together across their identity divides, and then he showed them who was worthy of their shame. That was so powerful that these guys said they had to kill him. I mean, I think that is a really critical lesson. It's that, you know, number one, it was the billionaires who killed Jesus. Okay, yeah. number one. Number two, his taking them on was so dangerous to them that they did, you know, something unprecedented, which was to say execute him when he hadn't, you know, actually military, you know, committed a, an insurrection, yep. right? So I I think it's really telling about who the public's enemies are, who are the enemies of the American experiment in democracy and of the American people. It's the billionaires. And how dangerous is it going to be for us to take them on? Very. How are we going to have to do it? United. Yep. Okay, so all of that is now let's get to the Hydra, which is the other sacred story that I spend quite a lot of time with. And I just use the expression kleptocratic network. That's really wonky, right? <laughs> I apologize. Like, that's two words. I, yeah, that are... it, it works, though. It, it definitely works. But that's where the Hydra comes in. It's a more imaginative way of yeah. saying the same thing. Yeah, yeah. So there are a couple of things about the Hydra. Many things, but a couple of things that make it such a great analogy for what we're grappling with here. Yeah. Number one is, it's an evil beast. Yes. It's going to destroy our community. Mm-hmm. One. Two, it poisons the atmosphere around it. It breathes out this poisonous breath. So it just poisons the whole area around it. Number three, it's got all of these different heads. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the heads, you will think, you could think that it's separate, you know, creatures, right? Because they're all snaking in different direction and striking from a different place and, and, and throwing you off balance because they're coming at you from a different direction. And yet, they're all attached to one body. Yeah, they're working that's an separately in- but in concert in, certain, in a certain way. That's exactly right. Mm-hmm. And that's what gets us to, so back to the network expression, let me bring this back into a different way of, under, you know, a more modern, if you will, way of understanding this. Americans, first of all, we tend to see corruption as isolated events. This venal official, this guy yeah, yeah. with his hands in the pocket, this gal who, you know, wrote a, you know, threw a contract to her sister-in-law, You know, and it's an individual self-contained thing. And often the way journalists have to write about it exacerbates that because they have to write all the details of this specific case in order to prove that it was really wrongdoing, right? And whereas it's much more real to understand corruption as the operating system of sophisticated, integrated networks. That means that when you, that you have public and private sector officials working together as part of the network. Again, we tend to talk about the revolving door as though an individual 
is pushing a door between public and private sector. That's not really how it's working. What you have is an integrated network that is placing its members alternately in positions of public power and in positions of private gain. And that means that, and, and, and in fact, these networks also often include out-and-out criminals. I mean, every place that I have investigated them, they have. Yeah. So it's really at least three strands, and they usually include a kind of violent, you know, a violent group, a violent element. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So you could say there are four, because those are essentially terrorists, right? Even if they're not necessarily religious terrorists, people who deliberately use violence to to terrorize civilians Mm -hmm. are terrorists. Yep. Yep. So you've got four strands to these networks almost everywhere that I have looked at them. And these are strands that Americans tend to keep separate in their their mind. That's why the networks are so confusing to us and why they're so incredibly resilient because they dispose of all of the powers and capabilities of political power economic wealth, criminal agility, and brute force, right? I mean, that's a lot. That's what we're up against. That's the hydra. I was just just having a moment over here, forehead rubbing, thinking about exactly the uphill battle we're facing, thinking of those four elements right there. And uh, and there's one thing, one attribute of a hydra um, you didn't mention that you do, of course, in the book is – if you cut one head off, uh, two more grow. And it's just, you know, the, the, the beast is resilient, as you're saying. It's, re- it's, such, a, it's such an excellent metaphor. It really is. And it, and it, it does. It takes away that individual uh, element to it where, where people do hone in on just that one problem there when it is this bigger, bigger beast. And I'm really glad you spoke on the power of myth. It, I think there's something really to there. And, and, and you know, one of the lines you said... Um, because our society has turned its back on the storehouse of wisdom contained in our ancient sacred stories, we are condemned to live our myths in flesh and blood. And you already alluded to that, but I just thought that was such a great line. And it's so true. There's so much power there. And we might be um, not be making the same mistakes or be more aware to the ills that are around us if we did you know, share these stories and have these conversations. It's, it's so powerful. Thank you. And just to reinforce your point about the head, you know, the two heads sprouting where one was cut off. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think this is a really important lesson for those Americans who are focusing on Donald Trump and his coterie or Hillary Clinton and her coterie as the sole source of corruption in this country. Every, I mean, I have now examined also maybe a dozen anti-corruption insurrections around the world, mm-hmm. starting with the Arab Spring mm-hmm. and going across to, you know, Guatemala, Honduras, uh, Lebanon repeatedly um, in the news recently. Lebanon is learning because it's been through three anti-corruption insurrections in the last decade. Um, but too often the anti-corruption kind of uprising, which is very broad-based, and that's important. But people go home once, you know, once they lop the head off of the hydra, once the government falls. And every time, Guatemala is a great example, Um, you know, Egypt is a shocking example, even Tunisia, in my view, um, are examples of where the hydra just puts out a new head. Yeah. I'd like to apologize. I have an extremely loud bird no, right no, next to me. So if I, I, that came into the conversation, I, I like do it. apologize. I like it. No, that sounds beautiful. No, you're right. I see. I feel like too many will be, um, you know, if Trump does lose this election, like that's such a win for so many that they would walk away when I've always liked the idea of looking at something like a Trump presidency as a, a symptom of something so much bigger. Thank I, you. I, I think it's really important to, uh, to look at that. Um, my next question kind of gears us uh, to that a little bit, to you know, something that did lead to Trump. But um, I saw you speak with Nancy uh, McLean 
which uh, who I'm I'm such a big fan of her book uh, Democracy in Chains. It's really really wonderful. But um, in your discussion, you guys were talking about the 2008 housing crisis as one mm-hmm. uh, disastrous outcome of corruption. Um, you spoke about Eric Holder and. And I think this was the crux of it, the lack of accountability that, um, that kind of took place. And I was wondering if you could explain a little bit um, kind of what happened there broadly. And, and, but more importantly, what was so devastating about uh, the corruption in this case and, and kind of where it led? Um, what I start to look at is kind of when the protections against systemic corruption started getting dismantled. And that, I mean, uh, a clear kind of starting point is 1980. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, I think a lot of left-leaning voters would say Reagan. And indeed, Reagan had a lot to do with it in terms of, you know, dismantling the regulations that had protected the United States from financial crises since they were put in place during the New Deal. We had not had a financial crash or a ensuing depression since 1929. Um, But I would just like to say that culture was changing too. There are lots of indications that quite apart from Reagan's actions or example, the Midas disease was, you know, back from remission. You know, yeah. it, it was hitting again. Yep. And he and his administration put into very virulent action a lot of the implications. The results were instantaneous. You didn't have to wait until 2008. You got the savings and loan crisis. Mm-hmm. And what was fascinating about the savings and loan crisis is that there were still enough regulatory agencies and we had the good fortune to have someone of character um, who was appointed to the bank board, and they did a really serious job of investigating and prosecuting after, you know, during the savings and loan crisis. And what they found was systemic fraud. This was not, quote, risky bets by savings and loan institutions. What it turns out to have been is risk-free activity for the president, the head, the CEOs and the top executives, and they just bankrupted their banks. But they made out great, right? So it was essentially bankruptcy for profit. And just like the Hydra, it poisoned the entire environment. Because then if you were a real estate appraiser in the hotspots, you couldn't get a job unless you were willing to do phony appraisals. And, you know, you would have contractors who were phony contractors and would sign up for these loans that they had no intention of paying back because they weren't ever going to build anything. So so it was both corrupt and corrupting. Mm -hmm. But it was curbed and reined in due to investigation and prosecution. The shocker. Is that, is that given that experience, that recent experience and great data and analysis on it, the Clinton administration doubled down on the deregulation. And so that is, I think, a really important object lesson, again, that connects back to what you just said about, about those voters on the left who might say, wow, if we can get rid of Trump, the work is done. You know, if it had just been Reagan, if Reagan had gone off on this radical bent, which he did, and then it had been reversed, and the protections for American citizens had been redesigned and better designed, let's say, than they had been, if that had been the lesson that was drawn from the Reagan revolution was, oh boy, we better redesign the institutions and guardrails to make them even more effective and even more responsive to citizens' needs, that would have been great. Instead, what we got was a validation from the Democratic Party. So suddenly what was a radical departure became bipartisan orthodoxy. And so I would say that that validation of the 1990s was equally bad for America you can't actually distinguish between the two. And that, again, takes us back to our 8-0 to zero Supreme Court 
deficient. We're getting distracted by the partisan divide in this country, and we're missing the underlying unanimity on things that are really terrible for the ideals that this country is is uh, built on. Bullseye. So, of course, there was a huge Republican-Democrat clash during those periods. I mean, Clinton got impeached for obviously politically, you know, I want to say partisan reasons. But under all of that partisan storm and drawn, you had pretty consistent policies. That's what's so shocking about it. So that's what sets up 2008. And why I say it's about corruption is it's about the workings of this network. Who was making all of these, you know, financial policy decisions for Clinton? It was the banking industry. You basically had the regulatees doing the regulating. And, of course, they were doing exactly what corrupt networks do. They were taking advantage of their positions of power to change the rules, not to steal pennies from the jar. That's trivial. Their job is to change the rules of the game so that the institutions serve the network, not the people. In other words, to rig the system. And they busily got in there and rigged the system. The result was inevitable. It was 2008. And that impact, I mean, a lot of people say, well, corruption is fact. Uh, I've had an exchange um, with a friend of mine who's a former chief of police of a major city. And he read this manuscript, and he was incredibly helpful, and he loved it. Interestingly, though, having even read it, in, a, in, in some exchange, email exchange we had, he said, well, I devoted my career to, you know, the kind of crime that really affects people's daily lives. And I said, wait a second, did you read the book? <laughs> you know, I mean, how many people, was it 4 million Americans? I've got the right number in the book in On Corruption in America, but, but uh, um, I think it was 4 million Americans lost That's their... That's right, yeah. Homes yep. in the wake of 2008. Yeah. What greater disruption to your everyday life can it be to get than to get thrown out of your house on your no bum? Roof. Absolutely. Yeah, that, man. It, it's 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 actually it's very heartbreaking, right? If you think about it on that indi- individual level, I mean, how many suicides? That, yes, exactly. How much hurt? And, and this was because regulations that protected just the public from, you know, the the abusive real estate agents or, or, you know, the insurance and mortgage lenders. I mean, they were dismantled and people were taken horribly advantage of. And you could see how this led to this, this frustration and this lack of accountability that, you know, kind of, well, that's the thing. I mean, let's talk in, 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 in contempt, in current terms, right? A guy may be forged maybe committed a $20 fraud. Mm -hmm. He was tortured to death for that. Whereas people who committed billions of dollars worth of fraud, now, it's not proven that they committed fraud because nobody even investigated them, Mm -hmm. right? But given the example of savings and loan where it was systemic fraud, given the fact that you know, then there were a series of other crashes between savings and loan and 2008 for which nobody really was um, punished, investigated, or prosecuted. The likelihood is that, you know, veteran fraudsters are running our financial institutions. And we should remember that banks but it's also money managers like BlackRock. You know, I mean, there's this whole other financial sector that is kind of opaque to regular, you know, regular Americans who think of a bank as a place where they deposit their money, right? Mm -hmm. Um, There are these money managers and private equity firms and things like that that are completely unregulated and are being run by criminals, essentially, Except, except, you know, they're not prosecuted, so they're not convicted criminals. Yes. That's, the differential in punishment. This is, now I found a little Old Testament here to go back to our sacred stories, Mm -hmm. but societies punish their own members. It's a very important thing that societies do. 
they do it to seek to, they do it, you know, to gain retribution. They do it to provide something to victims. They do it to deter future wrongdoing. But they also simply do it as a way of expressing in deeds as well as words where the society draws the line between what's okay and what's wrong. And we've essentially said that corporate crime and corruption is okay. That's, I mean, that way lies the destruction of society. There, There's no way a society survives that. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah, you pointed that out really well in your book. That that that's that's so important. It's these corporate crimes, they they almost act like they don't affect people. And it's kind of like the way we've been trained a little bit when, you know, down the line they most certainly do. It's really it's really scary. Yeah. And I'm I'm glad you put it in that more modern day way of thinking of it. It's, you know, in some ways they have um they've looted it from us more than we could ever imagine looting uh from them. In, exactly. In yeah. It's, it's, yes. Yes, that's yeah. exactly right. And so, you know, you asked about 2008, yep. but what I found, so, so I, I'm also a historian by training. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and that's the so, other kind of move that On Corruption in America does is it does quite a lot of history for a current events book. But the reason that it does that is because we really do have an almost perfect parallel that's within reach, which is the Gilded Age. Mm-hmm. That's only a century ago. That's, uh, and by Gilded Age, were incredible. It was. Oh <laughs> my goodness! It was mind-blowing. Yeah. I mean, so for me, I was dig this. I was a medieval Islamicist. Uh-huh. So the Gilded Age for me is like journalism. That's not history, <laughs> yeah, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but I had never really looked into it deeply before, mm-hmm. and I was absolutely gobsmacked at how parallel it was, as you say. Yeah. And it was parallel both in terms of the culprits, who were almost an identical network of business magnates, government officials, and out-and-out criminals, um, and you know how they bent some of the most important instruments of, sorry to sound wonky again, but instruments of state function, mm-hmm or powers of government Mm -hmm. to serve their network rather than the people. Um, But also the results. I mean, you know, gosh, I certainly knew about the Great Depression. What I didn't know was that the Great Depression tapped a series of financial crises and economic meltdowns that really began in 1873, and there was one about every eight or ten years. And then I say, well, golly gee, let's look at us. And it's like, oh, shoot, we've got, you know, we've got SNL, we've got dot-com, we've got the 1990s meltdowns, mostly in other parts of the world, but we had a couple of stock market, we had the, I think, the largest single-day fall in the stock market, didn't lead to a depression here, and then we have 2008. So I'm like, wow, that is exactly exactly the same pattern. Therefore, I wanted to look at the Gilded Age. How did they get out of it back then? Mm-hmm. I mean, clearly, we did. You can look at any, it's not to say that life was was roses, but in terms of deep economic meltdowns and that kind of a disruption, we didn't have any between 1929 and 1980, you know, 81 or two. So, and, and it's really interesting to look at the graphs, and I include some of those. It's flatline. Mm-hmm. The bank failures, absolutely flatline. And then they go bouncing up again. Um, and the answer is a very sobering one. The inspiring side of the answer is there were some really great, you know, movements of protest against the rigged system back then. And On Corruption in America looks at three of them, um, labor, basically labor protests, which we're seeing a lot of again today. A lot of it is not being covered in the media. There are wildcat, wildcat strikes yep. all over the country at the moment. I just heard about one by, um, you know, hospitality workers in D.C. over Labor Day. You know, often they're popping out here and there. They're localized. Yep. But there is a it's pretty happening. remarkable level. That's right. They're happening. Yep. Yep. 
Um, but it was much more concerted and they were up against a much more violent, you know, opposition from the power structure at the time. It was, it was really brutal. Um, and yet I was very struck by how idealistic it was in two regards. One is it was remarkably inclusive for the day. The Knights of Labor, one of the planks of their platform was equal pay for equal work across genders. There was a genuine effort to include workers of color, which eventually toward the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century got sacrificed. And that's a tragedy, a real tragedy. And it made it kind of impossible for the movement to win. You need the cross-cutting coalition. Yep. As soon as you start dividing up along identity divides, you're, you're going to lose. Yep. But it's pretty remarkable for the day how um, uh, inclusive it was across racial barriers, certainly across religious, language, class barriers. Because even within the working class, there were class barriers. Mm -hmm. That was very conscious, and I didn't realize that. The second really interesting thing sort of culturally about it was how vibrant it was culturally. Mm -hmm. I I didn't really realize that. The eight-hour day was a prime, you know, uh, rallying cry. And when you look at why people wanted the eight-hour day, it wasn't just, you know, we want to work less so we can sit on our bums more. It was eight hours to work, eight hours to rest, and eight hours to do all the other things that make you a human being. You know? And what I found... It is noble. And it's about the human condition being other than sweat and unconsciousness. You know, or or riveted to our computer screens Mm -hmm. and then going unconscious. Humans are that more. there are other ways of, sorry. Humans are more. They're more than just what the work. The work, more than the work shouldn't just define them, and that's that's what that was about. That's really cool. It was, and what I found was, you know, there were all these vibrant, you know, amateur theaters, you know, um, p- gymnasiums, public gymnasiums where people had their own, te- you know, like wrestling teams, and you know, there was the cultural life was incredibly vibrant. Anyway, that. You know, so I looked at some of the urban movements and then I looked at the Farmers Alliance, which was similarly dynamic. And what blew me away was this was an entirely rural movement. Then, as now, you know, country bumpkins were really looked down on. And yet they had some of the most sophisticated reform ideas, many of which were, you know, eventually enacted, you know, like direct election of senators was their idea. Uh, incredibly sophisticated. In, uh, and um, the downside was that none of this worked. 70 years of this kind of dynamic, courageous, creative, you know, determined, sometimes violent movement. And it couldn't take down the Hydra. Didn't take on the Hydra. It's, 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 so <laughs> what... What did? What did, and here's the really sober side, Mm -hmm. what did was two world wars Mm -hmm. equals two genocides, mass starvation in Europe, the nuclear bomb, Mm -hmm. and a pandemic that makes this one look like, you know, a bad flu season, plus a global economic meltdown. It had to get really, In other words, really, really bad. It's, it got, you know, the clep, the kleptic, you know, the kind of systemic corruption drove or helped drive the world into that level of calamity. Mm-hmm. And out of those ashes was born enough of a solidarity ethos that touched enough of the elites including in the lead, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, you know, who came out of the same class as the Hydra did, Mm -hmm. but he was somehow transfigured, maybe by his own personal tragedy and by the global calamity that he saw unfolding around him. And 
what opened was a generation, 40 years of of an environment that was at least susceptible to change. It's not that the change change came automatically, right? Every inch of it was very hard fought. But at least for 40 years, the fighting made some gains. It made gains in terms of reining in the corrupt networks, and that's all the New Deal legislation, antitrust enforcement that was serious during those four years that kept business down to a size that government could actually regulate it, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, I'm all for small government so long as business remains small, too. You can't have mega corporations and tiny, powerless government, because then we're just going to be tyrannized by the corporations, which is what we're... That's right. It's what we're living through now. And that was the other, by the way, main demand of all of the protest movements in the Gilded Age was was break up the mega corporations, the trust. Um, And that also has fallen by the wayside. So I am speaking to you from West Virginia, Mm -hmm. which is, number one, the home of the 12-hour day. Everybody I know who works in a factory works 12-hour shifts. And, you know, mega corporations are now powerful enough that they can come onto my land without asking me to check for whether there's any gas under here if they get three of my contiguous neighbors to agree to them coming onto the pooled area. I mean, that's a violation of the most, I mean, I want to say capitalistic Mm -hmm. protection, which is property rights. Uh, and that's because these corporations have become so powerful. So, um, we got a generation where we could curb the kleptocratic networks. We got expanding rights for, I want to say not disadvantaged, but, but what's the word downtrodden, uh, groups, including minorities such as blacks but including the majority of the American population, which is women, including, um, you know, various others, Americans with disabilities and so on. We also finally got some protections for our most precious community members who aren't able to speak, meaning trees, um, water, uh, you know, the four-leggeds and the finned, Mm -hmm. you know, those members of our community who have nobody to speak up for them in, you know, the councils of homo sapiens. Yep. Um, and they're still taking a beating, but at least some protections were erected for them. Yeah. And then beginning in 1980, all of that stuff got progressively dismantled. And so what I have to say, what I'm trying to say here is scary. Yeah. It's, History tells us we're not getting out of this without cataclysm. And frankly, cataclysm in the 21st century will make 20th century cataclysm look like a picnic. Yeah, absolutely. And we're looking, mm -hmm. yeah? No, no, please go right on. Sorry, I'm just... (laughs) I know. We're looking at, you know, at the... We're seeing it on the horizon. My my niece lives in California. She says it feels like living at the end of the world. Yeah. Yep. I've seen some pictures. I mean, we're burning. Friends. It's just ashes are just absolutely raining. And that's, I mean, you're you're speaking of some of this dev- devastation, you know, in, in the list that you mentioned that led up to that mere 40 years of prosperity, if you can even call it that. I mean, what climate change, anyone who has done the research and, you know, is looking at what it could do. It's it's of devastation uh, at levels we could we couldn't even imagine. Exactly, and and it's and it's all around us. We're seeing it. I mean, Siberia is on fire. Yeah. It's not just California that's Australia on fire. Was. Siberia just, is on fire. Remember on what fire. started this uh, crazy year? It was uh, Australia burning coast to coast. Australia. Yeah. I mean, so you know, and the again. Amazon, and just not to go down an environmental, oh. you know, road here, but I <laughs> yeah. think it's very, very important that we that we give it its place. It's not just CO2. Yeah. I think there's a reductive way that this is getting framed. For example, I recently in a newspaper saw a quiz on CO2, 
and it was like it was basically trying to get people to think about what is is reducing less CO2 than they thought it was and i thought it was a terrible quiz because for example they you they were talking about plastic packaging mm-hmm. Well, okay, using less plastic packaging may not reduce CO2 in the atmosphere as much as doing something else, but we have to do that too. Yes. So if we get too reductive about CO2, we're going to miss the interrelatedness mm-hmm. of, the, of the environmental devastation that we are perpetrating. Mm-hmm. So when the Amazon is burning, the problem there is not just the amount of CO2 being released into the atmosphere. The problem that is that the Amazon is is basically a vital organ of the creature that is planet Earth. If you started burning your liver, you know, the problem wouldn't just be that, you know, some of your flesh was getting combusted. The problem is that the liver function would no longer be done. The Amazon does a lot for the planet. Yeah, many describe it as uh, not the liver, but the lungs. And that makes sense. The lungs, right. But that suggests, again, just the oxygen CO2 transfer. True, true. You're right. What's even more important is the hydrological function. Got it. Forests actually attract rainfall. Yep. That also cools the ground under them. Anyway, not to go into, but just back to Midas, right? We are converting that precious organ that is irreplaceable, we're converting it to zero. Yep. They're deregulating again and again and again. Now, I, I know we went to just a very pessimistic place, but I think it's important that I see, you know, and, and hope hope matters and, 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 you know, holding on to hope, I think there's power in that. But I mean, also being aware of just the, the kind of the stakes. It's, in, it's, 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 it's not a time to relax. I, that's that's something exactly. I really think, and it's just, you know I see I was seeing a lot during um, the first couple of months of pande- the p- pandemic, a lot of uh, the storylines of nature's healing, and I'm just like this. The, the science does not speak to that. You might see some dolphins in, you know, certain parts of uh, Italy you hadn't seen them before. Some fun little natural things, but let's not let's not kid ourselves right there. But yeah, I think it's important. Yeah, it's- and I love, I love, I mean, so urgency, I think, is the, is yes. the word that applies here. Yep. And I actually think, like you, that hope may, I don't want to say be counterproductive, but I actually just think it's irrelevant. Yep. What I'm trying to say is, if we don't get to grips with this struggle against systemic corruption with the utmost urgency... Mm-hmm the very likely result is going to be cataclysmic. Therefore, what I'm trying to say is, hey, let's get the disaster survivor ethos, that incredible solidarity that is often birthed at moments of great social crisis, meaning, you know, fires or earthquakes or floods or, you know, the blitz in London. I mean, suddenly everyone was helping each other. No one gave yeah. a darn yeah. what class they were from or whatever. Let's find that. The Let's find that now. The reaction of a cross-cutting egalitarian coalition that's of the scale of wartime efforts is that's really, exactly really right. Yes, it, it, that's it's so exactly right. Crucial. The, uh, and, go on. And here's the thing is that when you're living through that, like when I describe that, oh my God, it's urgent. We all have to band together and do these sacrifice together. And it sounds terrible. It sounds like, God, what a, what a cold shower she is. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Ask anyone who's lived through a time like that. It is the most vibrant, exciting, meaningful time that they've ever lived. Absolutely. What I'm saying is let's make this fight a celebration. Yes. I love that. Let's get out there and do it and make a party of it. I, and damn it, make it the most powerful moment of our entire lives. I keep saying, I mean, I keep, I, I, I'm like, I love the idea of using this time to reimagine everything. Reimagine your involvement. Reimagine what you can be. Reimagine possibilities. There, that's like that. I think that's where the hope. Yes, the thing that's, you know, that gives you reason for pessimism is real. And we need to react accordingly to that. But the hope is kind of almost in yourself and what you can contribute because it is it's going to take all of us using our unique skills and our unique passions to kind of come together and, and find ways to do it and that is beautiful what's happening and what's going to happen is not beautiful but what we can contribute 
really is. Um, exactly. And it's not up to us to think that the outcome rests on our shoulders. Yes. What we are responsible for is giving the best of us yes. to yes. this fight. Yep. And then we will have a ball. Yes. I'm, yes. I love that. I, I, I think we end it right there. I, I, I was going to. I think so, too. And that is exactly what we did. End it right there um, on that bomb. I can't thank Sarah enough for her insight and time. And thank you all for joining us once again on another journey across the margin. This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at OsirisPod.com.